0: i was just thinking uh when we were chatting about that section that we should have framed this as like a yimby paper it's like the way to solve uk housing crisis is houses on the moon because we sure as hell aren't going to do anything else
1: (laughs) i think we probably would get houses on the moon before we solve the housing supply side crisis that's for sure
0: yeah isn't that a bitter pill to swallow Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm the head of research at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm pleased to be joined by my co-host and our director of operations, Morgan Shondemeyer, and our special guest for this week, Rebecca Lowe, the former director of Freer, and a consultant on political and economic research issues. In this episode, we'll be discussing property rights on the moon, the mini reshuffle, and the gender-neutral Brit Awards.
2: Sixty years since Yuri Gagarin became the first human being to orbit our planet, and John F. Kennedy spoke of the need to institute the rule of law to man's new domain, property rights in space remain up for debate. But with the advent of private space travel and increasing scientific capabilities, we won't be able to avoid a serious debate on how we deal with our relative rights in space for long. That's why we published our new paper, Outlining a Framework for Property Rights in Space. Privatizing space, if you will. Uh, Rebecca, can you briefly outline why this framework is important and what you think the best solution is to what is the ultimate tragedy of the commons that is space and space land?
1: Okay, so I just say, I guess, generally, that the paper kind of primarily addresses the question of what a kind of classical liberal right space approach to economic justice demands in terms of adjudicating these kind of problems of the individual ownership of land in space. So i kind of um, reduced it down and reduced it down and reduced it down. So we basically get onto the topic of of plots of moon land, um, but I feel there probably are some you know, sort some, of some wider applications you might be able to take from this about ownership in space. But also, an implicit underlying question is what the answer to these kinds of questions offer to help us assess the adequacy of ongoing approaches to property on Earth. So that's the sort of the what what it's aiming to do. The reason I think it's important is as with all questions of property, it seems pretty obvious that property is something that's natural, that's something human beings are going to do that human beings do, and that brings benefits in in various ways. I mean, anybody who's got any familiarity with any of the kind of free market stuff you guys publish, um, any of the kind of classic literature on these topics will recognize that there are definite benefits to property rights and property rights systems in terms of security of ownership, in terms of intrinsic stuff like senses of belonging and senses of achievement, but also in terms of protecting things, in terms of enabling commerce and wider economic goods. Um, but there are also questions about the costs of, of, of property. So the, the question around space ownership really pertains to there are great advantages if we were able to institute this kind of uh, rights regime, but we should also take into account some of the lessons we've learned from some of the problems that have arisen on Earth with traditional ways of um, adjudicating these problems, something like that.
2: Yeah, and this is more than just you know carving out a plot of the moon that you can set up a new settlement on. This is talking about, you know, the mining of asteroids for, you know, crucial resources or in the end case or the worst case, what we do if Earth Earth begins to fail as as a habitable planet. So Dan, as Rebecca just mentioned, we talk a lot about the benefits of strong property rights, which they confer on on humans as individuals, but also society. So is it really such a leap to think that we should apply a a similar framework in space?
0: Uh, No, I don't think it's a leap at all. As you said, there's a, a very Clear thread within free market and classical liberal thought, espousing the various benefits of property rights for wealth creation, for promoting human dignity, for building up capital, for encouraging innovation, etc. And yet, this doesn't seem to have been, since the kind of dawn of space exploration, to really have been applied in, in any way or in, in any strong way uh, to space, space land, and the moon. The classic example in our most recent paper, and There's a few reasons for that, as I'm sure Rebecca will be able to explain this far better than me. But basically in the 60s, we had uh, a treaty, uh, a UN treaty that effectively made it very difficult or arguably impossible to have any sort of national appropriation of space land. Uh, And by extension, I think most people tend to agree that that also applies to individuals. And it seems as though the underlying thought process behind that was space should be something for common humanity to use it shouldn't be subject to these sort of rules and we need to avoid the Soviet Union setting up a nuclear base on the moon or some far-fetched scenario like that but times have moved on since that treaty was first signed even though it's still in effect and applies to the vast majority of countries around the world that have any interest in or capability for space exploration i guess what my reply to that would be is first off it's no good saying space and space land should be in the benefit for the benefit of common humanity and therefore not owned if that results in very little space ownership or actual capability to do anything with space land and one of the great things about a form of property rights in space is that it does create a very powerful incentive for people to discover more space land or to utilize more space land, because they at least in part, and we can get into the details of proposal, Rebecca's proposal shortly, but they at least in part benefit directly, uh, as well as people related to them indirectly from owning that land to a degree. So you're creating a very powerful incentive, and you're kind of actualizing the potential for people to, to be able to use this property in productive uh, and beneficial ways. Yeah, I
1: think, I think I think Daniel's explained it really beautifully. I think, so generally, the way I sort of look at it is, is there's this great argument that the optimal way of achieving certain human goods is through instituting some form of property regime. Um, and that whilst there are costs involved in that, if we don't do that, um, we're either not going to achieve these goods in such an efficient way, or we might not achieve them at all. Um, therefore, we should come up with, a, first of all, the justification for doing it, and second, a kind of method for instituting this. And then thirdly, this point around governance, um, which Daniel explained very nicely in terms of the the current legal situation. So what I've tried to do in this paper, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, I've got a lot of friends who are lawyers, and I've read a load of um, interesting uh, literature, legal literature on on this specific matter of property in space. And one of the big things that jumped out at me is that it's all very contradictory. Many people um, are very, very clear that the, the correct interpretation is this. And many people are very clear that it's this. And these things are often mutually exclusive. Um, so at the very least, there's a kind of intractable debate. But one of the things that does seem to be clear is that you can't really own things in space legally anyway. Um, but then the thing I say, I guess, I'm more interested in, and I think I've more of thinking about, you know, the kind of underlying moral questions so here we come into this big classic question of property which goes something like this i'm trying to think of a good way of, way of describing it imagine you've got like 10 people living in a house and they can't get out of the house one of the people is locked in a room and they have access to i don't know some some useful tool let's say a computer um, and let's say morally it's the case that everyone in the house should have equal access to the computer that's, that's just a ground rule of this thought experiment however only the person in the locked room is in the room with the computer. The other nine people are not in the room. Now the question is, If that one person uses the computer on some level, it kind of seems unfair because the other nine people can't. But it also seems wrong not to allow the one person to do it because they should have equal right to do it. So then one way of saying is, well, look, if the person isn't going to damage the other people's future opportunities in terms of wrecking the computer, so if them using the computer wrecked the computer, there would be a great reason to say, no, you can't use it until everyone's got equal opportunities. But if them just using it temporarily isn't going to harm the other people, and indeed it might actually help them because, for instance, maybe they can use the computer to find a way to unlock the room, then that seems a good thing. And that's the kind of type of reasoning that I'm trying to apply in this paper. And it's been a great big question um, in the matter of property, and particularly in the way in which property has been addressed um, by by John Locke and some of the other thinkers I engage with in this paper.
0: I think one of the things I absolutely loved editing and reading this paper, by the way, it was an absolute pleasure. Uh, And one of the reasons was because both me and Rebecca share uh, me to a, le- a much lesser extent, uh, philosophy backgrounds and tackling sort of moral issues around property rights from the perspective of space, which I also find extremely cool, uh, was very nice. The other part, and I think this you know, relates very much to the ASI's practical policy work as well, is getting into some of the specifics around how we would actually manage those plots of moon land if they were privately owned Uh, and one of the things in the paper that I found particularly interesting is you know you you mentioned Locke and obviously Locke is a big part of your own thought but also Henry George and this idea of uh, a sort of land value tax for plots of land on the moon or economic rent certainly being being charged on these Uh, and I'm interested so this is where I'm not sure we depart but we we maybe have quibbles Uh, and it's thinking about, okay, we want, say, some sort of international governance organization to enforce these property rights on the moon and then collect a certain amount of economic rent from the owners of those plots of land. And then the question becomes, okay, we've got this big kind of pot of money for the good of humanity. Where are we going to spend that? Some of the suggestions that you had in the paper and they're, they're excellent and really interesting suggestions, one was trying to actually democratize space exploration and whether that takes the form of, you know, potentially funding space programs for countries that do not currently have them, or that they're underdeveloped, that's one way of doing that. But the other one was, was kind of alleviating urgent needs on Earth, and I read that as as kind of poverty alleviation. Now, as much of a space nerd as I am, I would very much go for the latter rather than the former. Uh, and I'm sure you're grinning uh, as we record this, Rebecca. And I'm sure you know exactly why. That is. But I mean, I'm interested to know what the kind of the rights based reasons are behind you wanting to try and and democratise space travel.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I suppose there's a sort of a a simple, slightly cheating answer I could give, which relates... Back to something Morgan said earlier, which is this idea that, you know, at some point in the future, we may all have to go and live on the moon. So I do sort of leave a little bit of space in the paper to say there may be some time in which people's urgent needs can be directly met through being on the moon. So one of the things, I, one of the ways I address this paper is by looking at some of the ideas around conditionality in, in property rights. Now I do put this as a little aside in the paper as a as a shout out to some people who I've who I've met over time through my sort of dealings with the free market movement who have an incredibly absolutist approach to property and indeed think of that property as their sort of their fundamental you know single value um, sort of monist approach to, to to morality to justice to everything else. But they also claim to be hardcore into freedom. I've I've always found that quite quite hard to balance out. Rather, I, I think it, it does strike me that certainly the classic approaches to property like like locks, but also I'd say really any coherent moral approach to property is, is gonna have some kind of conditionality baked into it. Therefore, two of the things I I um I look at in terms of setting up this framework, as you as you intimate, one of them is around the meeting of urgent need. And one of them is around spoilage. So anybody who knows anything about about Locke will recognise these kinds of ideas as coming from what are thought of as the Lockean provisos and the various of these of these things. Um, so in within the framework, what I try to set out is this market-based approach on which it's a competition based on sort of supply and demand, whereby people pay. To, for usage rights of um, these plots on the moon, in a sort of very very narrow sense of, of ownership, I think this also touches on Morgan's point around Henry George. The thought is something like one of the values of doing it in terms of a rental-based approach, although it's not technically rent because there's not no actual owner that's premised in my in my framework, but it makes sense to think of it as rent. Is that it gives us a temporary approach, which thereby kind of solves this classic first come first serve approach, or quite a lot of it anyway. Because the idea is you're not going to be precluding anybody else by using the stuff, um, and indeed on my model, you're actually going to be helping other people to compete against you. Partly, as I said, through this um, democratization of, of space travel, democratization in the kind of non formal sense of enabling you know greater opportunities to, rather than any kind of formalistic substantive sense of democracy in a philosophical sense um so that's one reason i i would say I've, I've baked in that idea around space exploration just to make the system itself fairer because currently you've basically got you know bezos and like three other people who'd actually be able to um, take up the advantages offered in my framework i want it to be the case that they by doing that enable other people to compete against them that sounds to me like a great market mechanism apart from anything else but then also there's the vast intrinsic value of of space exploration i'm a big fan of this i've got to say thank you again i've said this several times to you in, both in person but i'm incredibly grateful to you guys for you know commissioning me to write a paper which brings together my nerdy love of space all things space which i've loved since i was a kid but never really had much chance to think about um formally which i have had the chance now to do thanks to you guys with also my kind of academic interest in in lock i've just finished writing a phd thesis on moral property rights which also leans quite heavily on the, the lockian tradition so it's been really fun for me to bring together some of that quite dry thinking with the cool stuff about space.
2: And uh, I will say as someone who has absolutely no background in philosophy it's an incredibly accessible paper there's lots of nice metaphors with apples and hills which explain you know (laughs) uh, (laughs) exclusivity and all of these things so I highly recommend everyone to read it Um, And I'm very glad to moderate this section so that these two can, can, you know, battle it out. They're they're the real wits here with philosophy.
1: Thank you. And uh, There's one other thing I'd like to say as well, um, which is so unusual in my engagement with think tanks. I've worked for various think tanks, been involved with various others. One thing I've always appreciated about you guys is your genuine embrace of pluralism, which is, I think, something that those of us who embrace freedom should aim to promote. I love the fact that I managed to get loads of digs in, for instance, at consequentialism, um, which many ASI papers depend on, um, and I know Daniel in particular is a great exponent of. So I really appreciate the fact that I mean I, I tried to do it, you know, in a in a thoughtful way and in a way which wasn't trying to you know rubbish anybody's strongly held and well backed up position. Certainly in the case of Daniel, maybe not some of the other consequential consequentialists, but yeah, I really I do appreciate the chance to 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 propose a different way of thinking to a set of people who are strongly committed to freedom so thanks for that too
0: well as we we are of course always pluralists you can be a natural rights libertarian a virtue ethicist libertarian or indeed a consequentialist libertarian we're all welcome in the big tent of the adam's <laughs> institute <laughs> I,
2: I will ask one more final question to wrap up this section what is our biggest barrier to achieving this regime of property rights in space? What, what do we think is the thing that's going to hold us back?
1: I think it's, I mean, the, you know, all the legal stuff and basically the fact that even my system, which aims to be highly individualistic, is dependent really on nations um, getting together, recognizing the benefits of this for humanity. We don't, we don't live in a, in a world in which this can just be done by individuals. My framework, I, I aim it to be the case that it could be applied to that kind of world, but that's not the world we live in. That may well be a good thing for many reasons, Um, but it's it's a serious barrier, I think, to a genuinely individualistic approach to appropriation in space on which, if you live in a country where the people in charge, like some of the major space players like Russia and China... Um, don't recognise your human rights. Don't have any an egalitarian approach to the protection of property rights. The idea that they're going to be in favour of putting in place an egalitarian and rights based framework like mine is is you know it's cloud cookie land. Um, so that's I'd say one of the biggest problems on Earth already is um, the dictatorships that. Many people, sadly, either excuse away or ignore um, who's oppressed, oppressed people. Um, but it's also a problem in terms of our progress in in uh, enabling a fair and just approach to access in space as well.
2: Yeah. And I think that's what makes this so novel, this framework, is because we've looked at space from a national point of view for so long. You know, NASA and, and state based programs are what drove space exploration and the technology to do it. And only in the last few years, I mean, even 18 to 24 months have we seen private space exploration really, you know, come to the fore. So it's it's almost obvious that we would be approaching this from a national framework. But that doesn't mean it's the best way to approach these issues, that there are other ways. And, and probably we will be leaning more towards the individualistic approach towards space exploration in the future. But if we're stuck thinking... Well, space is a national issue. We're never going to adapt to the actual changes that we're experiencing. We're never going to adapt to the advance of, of private spaceflight, which we're already experiencing. And we're kind of in that middle ground right now where SpaceX is partnering with NASA to, to, to accomplish these goals. Well, what happens when SpaceX gets good enough at doing it on its own, you know? We're gonna to have to start approaching these things not from a national point of view and more from an individual or company-based
1: view. I think that's right. I think legally there'll still be we'll still probably need some kind of national framework to fit within international law. I mean, again, I've left those questions open to be answered by by IL experts. But um, but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Those companies that are making vast, vast moves for the sake of humanity still largely depend on on states on funding on bidding for contracts those kinds of things but we're moving away from that and there's a strong dessert-based argument i address in the paper which says if you're bearing a load of the reputational and financial risk and costs then you know maybe you should get some skin in the game
2: i think that might wrap up this section uh we still have two more we need to address so i will throw it over to dan
0: this week saw a reshuffle. In fact, it was a mini reshuffle, most notably involving Jacob Rees-Mogg moving to Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Mark Spencer replacing him as Leader of the Commons. Boris has promised a shake-up, but this extremely small reshuffle of mainly junior ministers is unlikely to create this effect. But there could be some benefits. Uh, I guess coming to you first on this, Morgan, do you think that Jacob Rees-Mogg moving to head up Brexit opportunities is actually going to make a dent in or, or change our post Brexit strategy, obviously, kind of well regarded uh, within the party uh, and externally as well as someone who is very much a, a blue blooded re- Brexiteer.
2: I'm not sure it's going to make as much of a difference if you put it in the context of replacing Lord Frost. So Lord Frost wasn't immediately replaced when he left, it was folded into Liz Truss's brief. Um, and I think this is kind of Undoing that a little bit, moving Jacob Rees Mogg into that role, which was uh, originally occupied by Lord Frost. And I think in that respect, Rees Mogg and Lord Frost are kind of of, of the same ilk. Um, they're both very much, uh, let's look at the opportunities of Brexit, let's kind of make sure that we are taking advantage of our new regulatory framework that we can create and all of that. I think this is kind of a continuation of that trend. Uh, Rees Mogg is obviously kind of a, a party grandee at this point, a, a loyal. Supporter of, of Boris and the Brexit movement, and he also has a lot of really good people around him. Um, so I think that this is kind of a uh, a continuation of the positive moves we saw in David Frost, um, making sure that we're focusing on grasping those opportunities. That it's it's not um, purely you know party political, but focusing on like the actual efficiency gains. And we know his title is Brexit and government efficiency minister or whatever (laughs) they've added on at the end there so kind of this maybe it's just words but the fact that we're pointing out that there are are efficiencies to be gained i think is a positive step um but i i think it's i think it's a good move i think taking it off of list trusts and moving it into you know an individual who has that as their main brief is good you don't want someone who's doing so many things that they can't actually devote time to such an important brief um, and like I say, Mogg has a good head on his shoulders and a lot of good people around him. So hopefully, we will see some um, tangible benefits. I will say that the Brexit opportunities paper that came out recently, outlining how they got crowns back on pint glasses and whatever was, you know, a bit lacking. So if we can be a bit more ambitious than that, I think uh, that would be good.
0: And I think that gets to the the heart of the question here, which is how much of this is rhetoric versus policy? you know, Is it the Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiency, or is it the Minister for Rhetorically Appeasing the Free Market Wing of the Conservative Party without actually doing anything uh, properly? So I guess for all this, this kind of talk of, of red meat that we've had in policy terms to appease backbenchers, and I think this reshuffle was a kind of example of that, have we actually seen much so far in the way of free market or classical liberal Policy reform. Maybe Rebecca, do you think that we're likely to see anything in the near future on this front?
1: I haven't really seen much of that, to be honest. I'm pretty depressed by the state of affairs. I'm not really sure what value I'm going to yeah. add to this segment because I haven't really been following in massive detail. As someone who voted for Brexit and was a, you know, um, could see many of the potential advantages, um, I feel we haven't really embraced that. I feel there's been just a lot of party political fighting. I feel as if you know both the, the Labour Party and the Conservative Party have just used it as a chance to beat up the people they don't like. Um, and I find that's pretty depressing. I had a very quick look before this at this at this piece, Rhys or whoever it is who writes his stuff for him, put in the papers of the weekend saying, hey, guys, what are the regulatory opportunities? It's like, you know, we how many years on? <laughs> it's like, it's, I, find it, I find it pretty depressing. I also have to say... Um, I usually avoid making any um or well, I try to avoid making sort of particular criticisms of particular politicians, particularly ones I don't know, and I've never met Jacob rees Mogg, I don't know him. I do worry that he it seemingly I wouldn't want to guess anyone's intentions, but he seems to intend to put across a certain type of um a type of presentation of a, of a, of a, of conservatism, of a kind of noblesse oblige approach on which privilege affords people expertise. Um I'd say my only awareness of his expertise is having read the pretty dire reviews of his book on the Victorians. So I'm not really sure whether, although I'm sure he had a great education, whether he's really necessarily benefited from that in a way which is particularly helping public debate. So I, to be honest, I've, I've got to say, as someone who thinks there are many benefits out there to gain from Brexit, I found the whole approach pretty disappointing. And I think it's a, well, it's an open admission that they haven't been focusing on what they could have been, to be honest. If you need
2: a list of Brexit opportunities, just ask. I'll happily deliver one. Yeah, exactly. We have plenty really? of regulatory reforms. We can we can act.
0: Do, do you think that there's this kind of admittedly very depressing slide away from any sort of classical liberalism within the Tories? Is this something that's been driven by electoral incentives or is it a, a shift in the general attitudes and, and ideological beliefs or, or lack of ideological beliefs of MPs. There was a good New Statesman piece very recently from Duncan Weldon on the rise of high tax conservatives. that just makes the, the blunt point that the Tories have to rely more and more on older voters who have very different priorities to the kind of coalition of older voters and working class voters that we saw during the Thatcher years. And obviously, we can have many quibbles about just how free market that actually was. But at least in, in some regards, there was an underlying you know, ideology or ideas that was driving some of the policy change in the 80s. Do you think this, I guess, wh- where do you think this is coming from? Maybe going to you first, Morgan.
2: Yeah, I think what we're experiencing is because of the 2019 election, the broad church, of the Conservative Party voter now is just too broad to manage. Um, I think they've kind of put too much emphasis on the red wall voter, imagining that they're a different type of voter than any other conservative party voter, when really they may not be, they may more just be normal people, just like everyone else. But the idea that a red wall voter is a a blue wall voter now is a certain type of person that needs, you know, local handouts and needs to be walked through the kind of political process by showing what, what we can do for them as, you know, a block. It's maybe a bit infantilizing, but also very hard to square with what is a traditional conservative government. So I think you're kind of experiencing this fundamental loggerheads. And I think that you can kind of see it. There's a lot of very confused policies out there and a lot of rhetoric that doesn't match the policies. So they're saying we're low tax. Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson co-wrote a piece and they said we're low tax conservatives. In what world? Like in what world are they low tax conservatives? They're raising national insurance they're doing all of these, you know, harmful things for the cost of living, you're not low tax conservatives. And and that's not just because of COVID. You know, you've decided that you're going to spend a ton of money, basically giving subsidies and local handouts so that you can, I, I won't be so skeptical as to say just so you can win both. Obviously, I do genuinely think that they want to achieve the leveling up goals and make lives better for people across the country. But that happens to get them more votes. So we won't be so skeptical as to say it's just pork rail politics, but that's obviously, I think, a small consideration. But back to my point about the large coalition we have now behind the Conservative Party. I don't think it's sustainable. I think they've created this kind of fundamental dichotomy in the party which doesn't allow them to stay true to their, their message and, and their core Conservative values while still... Providing what they promised. And I think that was a fundamental misstep, which yes, won them the 2019 election, but I don't think will allow them to keep this in, in the long term. So I think the the free market and the, the classical liberal wing is, yeah, it, they're being shut out, basically, because it doesn't provide them the results or the rhetoric that they need, really. Um, if that makes sense
1: I would only add that I think I think I agree with a lot of what you said that um, particularly your point around the patronizing way in which you know the red wall voters have have been you know reduced into these sort of particular sort of buckets um, but one thing I say is I often I used to write for conservative home and um, I thought quite a bit about you know sort of the history of conservatism and you know the, the makeup of the different styles of leadership we've seen and I think the, the term you used Uh, Morgan about about sort of a broad church is is right, and I the reason I came to believe that this is the case that the Conservative Party is more of a broad church than the Labour Party, although that has very much its factions, is because conservatism itself is inherently non-ideological. It's something that's responsive. It's something um, that develops over time, responds to particular times, and I think for that reason we've had a kind of pendulum within the Conservative Party in the same way as you have within. British electoral politics more widely, in which largely you go from this kind of noblesse oblige kind of um, one nation in the classic sense of the term type of conservative party um, being a, those guys being in charge of it, let's say, and then on the other side the more kind of classical liberal approach, and then I think a lot of people who are commenting on politics or are interested in politics, involved in politics now. Are people who've grown up in the time or have been influenced by people who've been growing up in the time when Thatcher was around? So, I mean, you know, when I was a kid, Thatcher was prime minister, I'm 36 now. And, you know, for a long time at the beginning of my adult life, I thought that because I have always been, you know, kind of libertarian leaning, I kind of thought the Conservative Party was the home for a voter like me. And I even ran as a candidate at one point. But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized that was just a particular instantiation. I don't really personally believe that there's if the Conservative Party is conservative, and that's another big debate, um, that there's any real conservative values, either with the big C or with the small C. Yet I think there are a load of people in the Conservative Party who just assume because that's what they grew up with, that particular instantiation of conservative politics, but that's, that that's there. And that means A, they don't argue for these things, B, they get pit, they get annoyed when people try to push other things onto them. Um, and it leaves, leaves you with this real kind of tension. And unless you address it head on, or as I would hope for one day, uh, we actually get a, get a proper liberal party. <laughs> And I, I don't, unfortunately, include the Liberal. The Liberal Democrats would have my vote if they are going to use that awful, awful, awful phrase, if they were either Liberal or Democrat. Um, but, you know, we don't have a Liberal Party, so the Conservative Party is probably... Actually, I, I, I wouldn't vote for the Conservative Party at the moment, so I'd vote for some local person who seemed not to be a total prat. That's about as good as it would get for me at the moment. I'm a localist.
2: <laughs> I, I think your I think your point of kind of hearkening back to the party in in its former glory as your idea of what the party you're voting for now i mean i think that's that's the same thing in the states you know the the republicans the party of reagan is not the same party as the party of trump especially for trump's first election you will have had a lot of people who were you know reagan republicans thinking well he's a republican so he's probably you know reagan-ish but if you've got 30 years between these emblematic leaders that you know to you, are the epitome of your party, and who you're voting for now, they could be entirely different parties. It's just because the name's the same doesn't mean that the actual policy's the same. And I think we're seeing that. You know, I don't think this conservative party is the party of Thatcher. I don't think the current Republican Party is the party of Reagan. But there are still well, people who are pretending that's the case. I don't think that's helpful. I don't think it's helpful to pretend that they're still the party of Thatcher when they're very clearly not. You can be a different version of the conservative party. But you just need to be honest about the fact that things have changed since Thatcher and the Conservative Party is representing itself in different ways now. Um, and if that's what you want to do, that's what you want to do. But you can't say that you're a Thatcherite and then do all of these kind of like traditionally non-small C conservative policies.
0: It does seem like there's been, as, as both of you have said, I, I agree with, with both of your comments, this slow awakening of people on the classical liberal side of politics, the fact that actually the Thatcher years were a kind of aberration or were very unusual and the exception in the conservative party's history rather than the default or the general rule and there's no kind of constitution to say we must always remain free marketeers uh, and people i think it takes a while to catch up with that especially when you do grow up in a certain generation you have these political emblems you have the kind of debates of 10 years ago that are still being rehashed when you go to sick form and you discuss and debate politics with your friends and things like that and it takes a while to catch up to what's actually going on in contemporary Britain. And at the moment, that's a complete lack of any real truly liberal force in party politics. And I could not agree more with your comments about the liberal Democrats, Rebecca, as well. It's a shame that we don't really have any party political vehicle at the moment to, to look towards as a positive representation of the sort of ideals that we think will improve the country and the world. But I think on that note, we should probably move on to our final section of the podcast, which is about, in a break from pin factory tradition, the Brit Awards and Adele.
2: It's going to get spicy because Adele sparked some controversy at the Brit Awards this week. as She accepted uh, one of the first ever gender neutral artist awards. While accepting the award, she said, I understand why the name of this award has changed, but I love being a woman. I love being a female artist. And this prompted a small but concerted backlash online, which claimed that Adele was trying to erase transgender identity. So Dan, why was it that these comments were so controversial? And maybe more to the point, were they that controversial at all? Or do we just put an outsized importance on outrage?
0: Well, I think outsized importance is probably the the key phrase of your question there. As far as I could see, there was it always seems to be when it comes to these sort of gender issues that make... The news. There seems to be a small group of extremely online trans activists who make a mountain out of a molehill and misinterpret a particular comment as something that certainly was never intended to mean, uh, and something that I think if it was intended to mean, that would be incorrect and wrong. Uh, But nonetheless, what's happened is that that's been seized on, I think, by others who are involved in the, the kind of very long running debate on gender identity we have in the UK to portray the vast majority of trans activism as being patently ridiculous and I just don't see that picture reflected when you look at the vast majority of people who are on a certain side of the gender identity debate um, and defend as they see it uh, trans rights.
1: Well I, I'd preface it by saying that I'm, I'm an uber liberal I think people should be able to go around however they want, dress however they want. I also am a big believer in, in civility and being reasonable to each other and respecting each other's ways of, uh, the values people hold, the ways in which they want to live their life. So I would just preface what I'm going to say by that. Um, and then I'd say, I think with regards to the Brit Awards, I have to say I know nothing at all about pop music. Not that I, I mean, I'm a, subjectivist about, I'm a massive subjectivist about aesthetic value. If you think pop music is great, then it is great. Uh, so it's not a criticism, but it's just to say I know nothing about it. So I don't really know what the Brit Awards are. Um, but I would just, I, thinking about this earlier, I thought I want to divide it into two things. So one of them is whether it's okay for the Brit Awards to be gender neutral. Bearing in mind, I don't know what the Brit Awards are, except that there's some kind of competition for people in popular music. So if gender neutral just means that there are no male and female categories for awards, then that seems to be fine for me. I think my view is that there are many areas of life in which we do need to recognize the difference between male being people who are male, and people who are female. And by that, I mean that there are two human sex categories and only two. That doesn't mean everyone fits into one of those two categories, but that there are only two, or at least neatly anyway, that there are two categories and there's no further sex category. Um, so being the kind of organism that produces large or small gametes or sex cells, however you want to say it, we don't have to be biologists about it. It's a common sense distinction and it's important biological truth knowledge. And it also helps us to meet people's needs in a dignified, humane way and helps us you know, fight prejudice. So in that sense, I think there are two sex sets. And I think that I think that the concept of gender is parasitic on this. I think it depends on there being two sex sets because it's about stereotypes, of the way in which people um, see or behave in relation to those to those sex categories. So I think there are certain walks of, of life in which we do need to recognize that distinction. So prisons, for instance, hospitals, data collection, various kinds of competitive sport um, in which people of a of one of the sex sets have a natural advantage, boxing, for instance, um, because men have a vastly greater punching um, strength. And that's to do with being born a man. It's not just to do with the development over time of being exposed to testosterone is my understanding. I'm not a biologist, but from what I've read But my guess is that music is not one of these domains. If one of the categories in the Brit Awards was having the deepest voice, then I would guess a man would usually win that. So then maybe it would be the case. But the kinds of things we're talking about, I don't think you need. So gender neutral in that sense is fine. But I would say that the criticism Adele has faced for saying she's being a woman is, to my mind, emblematic of, to use Morgan's word from earlier, um, um, emblematic of a bigger debate in which, unfortunately, pushing for um, equal respect Uh, of people regardless of how they want to go about their life and how they want to dress and any modifications they want to do to their body has unfortunately in some instances come at a cost for women. Um, And it's usually women. So for instance, oftentimes there are examples in which the term woman is not used alongside the term man being used many times. So there's an example going around recently. It's 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 just an exemplar one of a doctor talking, giving a talk in which he used the term uterus havers every time he referred to a woman, but he used the term man. Now, personally, I don't care what terms we use for these things. You can use shwoman, you can use um, what, you can use any of these things. All I'm saying is we need a term for what it is to be biologically a woman in the sense of being a member of the female biological sex set. We also need terms for other things, but we need to have, there are certain things we need to be specific about, not least because people from that sex set still face prejudice in many countries and even in our country today as well. So that's
0: where I stand on this. I find it just quickly to pick up on, on one thing you said, I I find it really refreshing that it seems as though your example of a doctor talking about a uterus have a, and then a man, like clearly he slipped up quite substantially there uh, and shouldn't have done that. And that may reflect some broader attitudes that 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 doctor has, but I've just realized I defaulted towards he there. Oops. Anyway, (laughs) whether the doctor was, was male or female, um, the fact that you seem fairly comfortable with using any term schwoman were whatever in order to highlight the sort of important biological distinctions you mention, I think, is is actually not the sort of stance that I've tended to come across from people who sit on, and I'm not saying you describe yourself as this, but on the, the gender critical side of the debate, there seems to be much more of a backlash against the actual use of terms like uterus havers because they are alleged to erase the kind of the material basis of of women's oppression etc so if i am i understanding you correctly and saying it's it's not kind of the term itself that's a problem it's just that we have to have some way in language to be able to distinguish in certain cases where there's
1: right yeah so so thanks for that and i yes i think i think you're ba- basically interpreting me correctly one thing i'd say though is i don't think uterus have a would be a good would be a good replacement for that because not all women have a have mm. a uterus for a start um you know if you've had a hysterectomy so i don't think that would i don't think that would that would that would be a good accurate use because a further thing i do think we need to take into mm. account is when words signify important concepts um, and I would say that this biological distinction does give rise to important concepts, not least because, as I say, many people suffer prejudice across the world. I'm reading a, a wonderfully reported but terribly, terribly sad um, piece in the, I think it was the Sunday Times, about um, these young girls in Afghanistan facing enormous risk to go to school, being taught by women who are also facing enormous risk to teach these children. Now, those girls are not being oppressed because they identify. As girls, they are being oppressed because that's the biological status of their being, of their person, in the sense of their self and their body. So I think it's important we have terms to describe those things that are accurate, that reflect our use of language generally. Um, But also I would say if if these things are important morally, which until it's until the day, hopefully one day will come when the biological distinction means means much less. Although sadly I mean we're not going to get rid of that entirely because there's still going to be women who have babies, for instance. But let's imagine we get into a world in which that stuff hardly matters at all, then using any old word might be might be okay. But at the moment, I think it's really important we have a word that that people in our community understand so that it's well understood and well publicized so that people don't get confused about matters. And so also people can stand up against oppression. So, yes, I don't care per se in a word sense, what the word is, but there are certain conditions nonetheless that need to be met and recognised by the choice of that word and the way in which we use it.
0: Yeah, I, I think that kind of hits on something important, which is that we are making an active choice about how the language we use impacts or the way that we talk about certain moral issues. And I guess from from my standpoint, that kind of applies quite well to, say, calling trans women. Women, or, or thinking of them as part of the broader class of, of people that we refer to as women, and the justification behind that—the the kind of the classic response—is you know, well, adult human female, adult human female, uh, and I and I get that the distinction, the biological distinction, is something important, but it seems like a lot of people are using the term, whether you like it or not, to refer. To trans women as well as, as cisgender or, or as assigned female yeah. at birth, or w- whatever term you might want to use for that. And I guess my initial reaction to that is well, that they're doing that, I think, for quite a good reason in terms of this. It seems that affirming trans people's gender, aside from being polite, um, is something that makes a lot of sense when we think about what we're trying to capture by the term woman. I mean, you mentioned the example of of young girls being taught by women in Afghanistan, the reason that they are undergoing some pretty terrible oppression is, is not because of how they identify. I mean, I imagine if there was a, a young trans girl in that class, I don't know if the people who are oppressing them, if they came across uh, and, and presented as a woman that that they'd really make that distinction based on suddenly finding out that they were trans i I feel like that there's there's multiple ways or multiple kind of avenues in which people might oppress those who who identify as or who are born into the class of being women
2: um one thing i wanted to touch on when you when you mentioned the idea of of calling someone a, a a uterus haver someone who has a uterus someone who has a cervix So we had this this conversation. There was another uproar about uh, the idea of calling people who have cervixes people who have cervixes. But I think that while we should still retain the words man and woman, I think as we're trying to be more accommodating to trans people, I think there is an important public health distinction to be made about talking about people with those biological characteristics. So trans men, uh, people who were born female and transitioned to men, still have cervixes, in most cases, still have a uterus. And if you're talking about important things like uterine cancer and cervical cancer, and you know, all those things which disproportionately affect biological females, you should include trans men in that discussion. They may be a minority, but by using terms like someone who has a cervix, someone who has a uterus, you are making the point that regardless of gender identity, your biology predisposes you to these health concerns, and you should be aware of that. And I think that's something that we always should have gotten across um you know someone with a uterus someone with a cervix someone with you know xx or xy or xxy whatever that there are those fr- yes it's fringe but there are also those people who need to be aware of these concerns so i think separate from general male female categorizations i don't think we should get rid of i think kind of our drive to include people who are marginalized in these discussions includes language that's which points out the actual biological concerns. So including people who have cervixes, have uteruses, have testes in these discussions on a medical basis, I think is important.
1: So we think I think the aim of language should always be to, um, well, I mean, there are going to be other aims of language, like to be beautiful and other things, but one core aim of language, and particularly in terms of like the medical domain and public policy more generally is to get across ideas in ways that people can understand. Um, so one, without getting too bogged down in this particular Uh, On this particular issue, I suppose one thing might be that there might be some people, particularly people whose grasp of English isn't so secure, who don't know what a cervix is, but do understand that there are going to be certain biological things that can only be relevant to them if they're a woman. So I think one obvious way of getting around this would be say women and all cervix havers, for instance. Um I I have no personal problem with that. But what I'd just like to add, maybe is my final point, because I have to say one thing is after having thought about this quite a lot and I used to write about it a bit. Um, I just find it, it, it's quite endless. There's often quite a lot of bad faith, not at all in this Mm -hmm. discussion, but I think there are other things to to think about in the world as well. So I'm trying my own sort of sanity not to think about it too much these days. But I just want to say that I think there is another side that has to be um, acknowledged in this debate, which is it's not just about permissibility in the sense of enabling people to to have the chance to talk about things in more expansive ways. It's also sometimes about the costs um, of wanting to um, retain certain ways of talking about things. So we have seen, I mean, the, the Adele example, again, not being a, an avid follower of pop music, I haven't exactly followed the, you know, the backlash she has received, but I'm sure she has received the backlash. And I say that because there are many people, um, not just celebrities, but ordinary people who have faced serious costs, reputational costs, legal, um, financial costs, um, for having gone against what is a really well-established um, uh, activist group who have... Who have infiltrated our institutions um, and have sought to change the way we talk about these things by using the mechanisms of law um, to such an extent that there is now quite a bad understanding, for instance, of equality law in this country. Now, I think there are massive problems with equality law. I think the Equality Act is not a very good act. I think it's in itself very unclear in much of its language. But unfortunately, we've seen organisations like Stonewall, who, who, who is one of their main aims is to try to explain equality law to organizations and institutions and um, purposefully misrepresenting the contents of equality law um, and that has had dire effects not only on many individuals in terms of the costs that they have faced for speaking out about something um, which they believe to be true and which on certainly my i, mean, I was hesitant about talking about certainty and, and dan as a fellow philosophy fan you'll you'll appreciate my my uncertainty about uncertainty um, but one of the things I think as human beings we can be about as certain as we can be about anything is around these matters, basic matters of sex, common sense, understandings about men and women. And if you're suffering vast costs for talking about those things in ways that are deemed unacceptable by activist groups who've, who are misrepresenting law, I think that's a serious, serious problem. Um, it's, made, it's, a, it's a separate question from the philo- interesting philosophical questions that we've been talking around around language. But unfortunately, I think, and I think I can't enter into a conversation about this without acknowledging the level of institutional capture we've seen and the costs on ordinary people. And unfortunately, mainly, mainly women, men can talk about this stuff and they don't get nasty stuff sent to them in the post. Unfortunately, when women talk about these things, sadly, they do. And there's a real misogynist strain at the heart of much of this, unfortunately. There are many good faith actors, too, on, on all sides of the debate, but unfortunately, there is a nastiness there too, which is sexist, purely and and homophobic as well. Because if you don't recognise sex, you don't recognise same sex attraction. It's regressive and it's unfortunate.
0: I think, I think I pretty much agree with with everything that you said there in terms of the the kind of the chilling effects and the very real consequences that people who take probably a very different view to my own on this issue that they nonetheless face, and also that there is, I, th- I think, in part you you definitely explain some of it in terms of. A, a, misogynist streak and as you say like I'm a man who takes a kind of more quote unquote woke stance on trans rights and I don't get any terrible death threats in my inbox and, and what not. I think that's partially just pure nastiness. In fact it's all pure nastiness but I, I think another fact of that might be this kind of th- this sense at least from, from one side of this debate a kind of sense of betrayal of as though well, you know, you're supposed to be fighting for, uh, in solidarity with us on this social justice issue. And it doesn't seem to me like you're doing that. So there could be a kind of an extra added anger there. I think that both, I think, play a role uh, and both are important there. I I guess from a kind of libertarian or or classical liberal standpoint, regardless of your, your views on some of the specifics, I think there's probably a lot of things that both sides would agree on and there's debate that don't particularly work. So you look at, for example, the the Gender Recognition Act and proposals to reform that, some stuff around the fact that there's a fee in order to apply to change your your gender seems ridiculous, bureaucratic nonsense. I think that where where the difficulties come in the practical policy spaces, as we mentioned in the intro, is things like single sex spaces and what should your your policy towards those be for me at least, it seems like the the kind of liberal individualist approach is where possible, do this on a case by case basis. Um, because I think that there are good arguments for why certain people shouldn't be in a man's prison, certain people shouldn't be in a woman's prison. I don't think it is necessarily as clear cut. But I just nice to have a kind of talk about this topic in a way that that's civil and and good faith and we'll probably close it out there i imagine morgan unless you had anything no i think
2: i think the fact that we all take very nuanced positions on this is that we could go on for hours talking about the intricacies of the debate and all the different ways this impacts trans people and cisgender people and all of that so we really could go on for hours but i think we will spare the audience spare our reputations maybe and uh, and wrap up here.
0: Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode of The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. I'm Daniel Pryor. I've been the head of research and co-host of the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. And I've been very pleased to be joined by Morgan Schondermeyer, our Director of Operations, and Rebecca Lowe, a former Director of Freer and a consultant on political and economic research. Hope you enjoyed listening to this episode and hope to see you next time for yet more banter analysis.